Welcome to the IMO podcast. Honest and open conversations with care leavers. Hi, it's Chris with the IMO podcast. And today I'm in London with Louise Hughes. Now, Louise and I have been geeking out on musical theatre. Louise, having done her A-level recital, singing some amazing show tunes. Which ones were they, Louise? Uh, so for my A-levels, I did uh, On My Own, Good Morning Baltimore, Razzle Dazzle and Defying Gravity. Iconic, iconic musical theatre songs. That that final note at the end of Defying Gravity, that's not hard? No. <laughs> I've seen many people try and fail, including <laughs> myself. So if you can do it, <laughs> that's amazing. No, easy for me. Now, Louise, we know you originally because you did an amazing keynote speech and also you wrote a Guardian article. Um, the Guardian article is fantastic. Tell me about how that came about. Um, so I had been doing some work for the charity Quorum Voice and they asked me to write something based on loneliness and isolation. And so I wrote an article about how when I was at uni, I was very lonely and isolated, having not had the experience of making friends growing up, having grown up in care. Um, and then I was told that it was going to be published in The Guardian, which was kind of a big surprise, um, which then has led to this podcast and my keynote speech. Yeah, so the keynote speech, where was that? Uh, so the Chambers, Doughty Street Chambers, the law firm in London, um, what's his name? George Clooney's wife is a barrister with them. Ah, showbiz connections, Louise. <laughs> Check you out. Have you ever spoken to that many people before? No, so it's about 100 people. Oh, gosh. Sort of all listening to me at one time, which was kind of quite scary. Would you do it again? I think I would. It was kind of, it was a really, once I got into it, and once I'd calmed myself down, it was a really enjoyable experience, and I could have a bit of fun with it. And were you talking about the same stuff that you were mentioning in your Guardian article? I mentioned a little bit, Um but generally, I was speaking about what does a care leaver look like? You might look at me and not think of me as your stereotypical looked after child. But what does that look like? And why do you have those preconceptions? Um, and talk, sort of talking about going to uni and school and all those things that uh, looked after children kind of have a, a negative rap for. And that's not fair. Where do those stereotypes come from? I'm not really sure where the stereotypes come from. It's a It's a good question. I think it's just... So if it could be social workers, could be um, other people in power, it could be teachers even. Um, sort of GCSE results and things obviously come from results having with children missing out on things. But I got 11 GCSEs, so I don't know where Amazing. that comes from for me. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> I think I pushed myself further because I had these low expectations of me. But I know others who have said, well, I'm expected to do rubbish, so I'm going to do rubbish because that's what's expected of me. Um, and I can totally see where they're coming from. But for me, I wanted to do the opposite. And the same with my sisters. They've done the opposite as well. So when you uh, were growing up in care, did people have expectations around you going to university? How did people treat you in terms of how far they thought you would get in the world of education? I think I was expected to get GCSEs because I worked my, my bottom off. But then when I said I was going to do sixth form and do A-levels, my um, designated teacher, uh, in this case was the Senko, said I was her first student to ever go and do A-levels. Normally they went off to college or went into apprenticeships and training. And that kind of surprised me because all of my friends were going to do A-levels. So why was it different that I was going to do A-levels? So my A-level results, I got CCD, 
but they lowered my offer to two E's. Uh-huh. And with my results, I shouldn't have got in. Right. But because they lowered my offer, I got in. Are you glad that happened? Yes, because then I got a two one degree. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> what was your degree in? Uh, education and drama. Wowie. Now, not only you, did you get a, a degree, but your two sisters also are at university as well now, right? Uh, yeah, so one of them uh, is a qualified childcare practitioner. She's been doing that. How old is she? She's 23, and she qualified when she was 18. And my other one, she's 21, and she's in her final year of uni uh, doing film and TV at the same uni I went to. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so kind of a family connection there. A lovely family tradition yeah. to go to the same university. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, we were talking uh, We were talking earlier, what about support for people that go to university and then want to do something like postgraduate? Is there enough support for care leavers in that respect? There's no support whatsoever, which is kind of my big campaign at the minute is why is there no support? Because there should be. Uh, if, I, if I had a parent, they could help me and I could get funding and there would be some, some sort of support there. But I don't have a parent to back me up. So I can't go and do a master's if I wanted to. So my youngest sister wants to go and become a social worker. But she can't at the moment because she doesn't have the right funding. And so it's ironic that the universities who have undergrad support don't have postgrad support. And it's for care leavers. For care leavers. Right. And it's kind of, why is that? You support them for their three-year undergrad degree. Why can't you support them for a postgrad degree? Same with local authorities. Because the support dries up then yeah. once you've done your degree. Yeah. Um, so what do we need to do then? What, what's, the, what's the issue? We need m- more money for people doing postgraduates. Yeah, I think there needs to be more awareness that care leavers might want to go on further than just the undergrad if they've gone and done an undergrad degree. Whatever, where, wherever a care leaver has decided to go after they've done their compulsory education, I think it's really important that we support them and we push them to where they want to go, whether that is to university and to a master's and to a PhD or if they want to just do more training and education I think there is such a need for more social workers and wouldn't it be amazing if there were more care experienced social workers because we know what we want and what we expect of a social worker. You mentioned your sisters what was your experience of being a looked after child but the oldest of three siblings? I pretty much brought up my sisters. From the age of five, I kind of looked after them. I came into care when I was seven, and my sisters were six and four. So we were we were very young. Um, and growing up, kind of just looked after them, kind of helped them grow. Um, and then we got we were put together until I was 15, and then we got split up. In a placement? In a placement, together, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it was very difficult because it was kind of, what is my role now? I'm not living with them. I've looked after them for so long. I've been the, the surrogate mum, so to speak. It's like, now I have to become a big sister, but I don't know how to do that. It sounds really silly, but that is how I felt and still do sometimes. I don't think that sounds silly at all. I can really understand how that might, that might be the case. Did anyone support you with that transition? I mean, you articulated it so clearly, but did anyone else kind of spot that at the time that you might be going through that? Not really. People were just like, you don't have to mother them anymore. But it's not a switch I can just turn off. And I still can't. Sometimes um, they might come to me with a problem and I'll go to them, do you need a mum or do you need a sister? Because they're two different things. And sometimes they'll say, I need a mum. Or sometimes they'll say, I need a sister. Or sometimes they'll say, I'm not sure. So I'll just combine the two. 
And it's kind of no one spotted that maybe I was going through this change and challenge of having to, I was no longer a mother, a mother figure. How do I become a big sister? Because I've never been just a big sister. And what does that do for your sense of identity then? I don't really know who I am, I guess. it's even Even now, I've not had to mother them for 10 or so years, but I still don't really know who I am as their sister because I've just had to look after them. And so with my sister at uni, um, she doesn't have parents who come and pick her up or whatever, but I'll go and she'll be like, oh, well, it's close enough, <laughs> which is, is really sweet, but I know what she really wants is she wants a mum and a dad to come and pick her up and just, like, say Merry Christmas or Happy Birthday. Instead, she's just got me, her big sister. Um, and again, sort of, it, it makes you feel quite isolated because other big siblings have grown up being just big siblings on the whole. In the Guardian article, you write so beautifully. Um, you're a really amazing writer, Louise. Thank you. But in, the, in this article in particular, you write about loneliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a very striking thing to read about. It's not something people talk about openly. What motivated you to write about that in particular? I think, as you say, it's not something that people speak about. And it's something that needs speaking about. Um, my uh, A couple of years ago, there was a BBC documentary about loneliness. And my friend from uni was featured in it, but only for like five minutes. And they f- focused on elderly people, those mental health conditions, but not those 20-somethings who still f- struggle with loneliness and isolation. And I think particularly for those growing up in care who don't necessarily have that experience of making friends, because I couldn't go to sleepovers or go to parties or get in a friend's parents' car unless they were police checked. Kind of all the things that for a, a, a normal in, You're child, doing an inverted compass. Sorry, yeah, sorry, I was like, yeah. A, a, a normal child wasn't normal for me because there had to be so many rules and things I had to go through, um, which then transferred to the uni because I was like, how do I make a friend? So you, didn't, you don't feel you had enough experience of making friends? No because of your, your time in the care system. Mm-hmm. Did that get any easier at university? It did. So my first year was really, really tough because I was having to learn how to be this independent woman that I'd never been allowed to be. And so I was having to try and, okay, how do I cook pasta? How do I make a cup of tea? How do I, like, pay my rent? How do I do all these things? As well as, okay, how do I make a friend? Um, because no one teaches you that you're just expected to know how to make a friend and I didn't really know how to do that and my second year was much easier I was able to make friends and kept them and then my third year because I'd made my friends I didn't necessarily have to make new ones but if I did it was much much easier she's fully booked there's no more spaces <laughs> for friends now if anyone's listening <laughs> yeah I've got too many <laughs> Do you think, like, I'm just imagining, like, something like a sleepover as a child, you know, as a 10-year-old child or something. That's where we learn about relationships and friendships, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wasn't allowed that. I think I had my first sleepover when I was 19 at uni because a friend went, well, that's not on. You need to experience a sleepover because everyone has to be checked. And if, if people wanted to come to mine, then that was okay. But I lived in this little remote village outside of the town, so people weren't wanting to come to me. And if they wanted me to come to them, it was such a big, big hassle and deal, even though I knew that they were all fine. 
What did that loneliness feel like when you were growing up? It, it was hard and it was very dark and kind of people will say that they, they feel alone in a crowded room, but no one can really tell you how that feels. People might know you're there, but they don't come and talk to you. Or I want to go and talk to someone, but I don't know how to start the conversation. Um, at, my, at my Christmas due a couple of weeks ago, it was that very same thing. I wanted to get on the dance floor, but I didn't know how to just get up and go on the dance floor. People had to drag me on. Once you were there, were you glad you were on the dance floor? Yeah, I, I left early, but once I was on the dance floor, I was like, OK, I'm on the dance floor. People want me to be on the dance floor. That's good. People are like holding my hand, making sure I'm staying here. Um, so it felt like I was wanted then. In, the, in that little situation, I felt wanted, which is something that I've experienced every so often, but not all the time. That's all anyone ever wants, isn't it? To feel wanted and accepted. Do those moments make you feel hopeful about the future? I think so. I think I know I want to feel wanted and accepted and loved in the future by friends or romantic partners or even just like my sisters. And I think as I'm getting older and becoming more aware of who I am, uh, because I've had that lack of identity for so long, it, it, it does make me hopeful. I don't know when it will come, but I know at some point it will be there. It's a process, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And it all starts with the dance floor. <laughs> it does. Maybe that's what we need. Everything starts with Beyonce. <laughs> yes. For you personally, did you feel you had enough mental health support as you went through the care system? No. I've only recently started getting mental health support and I've been struggling since I was 13. So that's been 10 years since I've started getting help. Um, and I was recently going through my files. I was reading my case files. And in it, it said that I didn't have a mental health concern. And I was like, well, that's wrong because I was experiencing and exhibiting um, symptoms from this age to that age, but no one was picking up on it. They were just seeing, um, inverted commas, a teenager. That I wasn't being a teenager. I was trying to cry out for help in a way I knew how. Um, and even now, sort of, it's... Um, my local authority aren't quite sure how to support me because everyone's different. Um, but they're investigating why they might not have helped me as much as they should have done. Do you think that assessment of you back then has had an ongoing legacy in your mental health? I think so. I think it's very much had an impact because I didn't get the help I should have done. So um, my two sisters both saw two different agencies, but I didn't. And why is that? When, agencies being support like, agencies. Yeah. Okay. So um, one being like CAMS. And I think in the back of my mind, I know that a lot of it is from growing up in care. That is the basis of all my mental health issues is because I wasn't supported properly going through the care system. So what kind of support would have helped you? I think what, I, what I've said before is looking beneath the surface. So what's on the surface? I could be swimming like a swan, but underneath I am pedaling really 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 fast and you're just not seeing that because I'm hiding it or if my bedroom's a mess is it because I'm being a teenager or because my mind is a mess which is what was happening or do I actually have friends or am I pretending I have friends or am I hiding away in my bedroom because I want to or because I have no other choice it's kind of all of these little symptoms that everyone else knows for for other children and other adults but for some reason, for children in care and care leavers, 
they're just seen as another oh it's just them because they're in care but they're not seeing it as a symptom or a sign of mental health it really feels to me like the way you describe that i really hear you saying help me i think i know i was crying out for help and i didn't really have friends my bedroom was a mess because i didn't know what else to do or how to show what was going on inside my mind um but my schoolwork was impeccable i didn't run away from school i didn't run away from home so because i was in inverted commas, a good child, I was kind of not pushed aside, but I wasn't a child in crisis. I used to be a social worker and I can really picture having lots of children to work with and only having time to deal with the, the, the children and the families that are in crisis all the time. Mm-hmm. And in, and the, the truth of the matter is that the, the kids that you think are doing fine because they're, they're not in those situations, it turns out we're, we're neglecting them mm-hmm. and they're not getting the support they need does that does that feel like that might have happened with you definitely you paint a picture of yourself as a child and then you describe yourself now as an adult giving the keynote speech writing articles in the guardian have you surprised yourself with that journey yeah it's some somewhere i'd never thought i would be i I don't know where i expected myself to be and it's not kind of the journey hasn't ends up where i thought i would be i knew i would get my degree but I didn't know where I'd be after my degree. And now writing all these things and giving speeches, it's kind of a completely different journey. And what about your future plans? For the future, I'm not entirely sure. I'm considering law. My experience with the lawyers with my speech has definitely um, set out some uh, interesting opportunities. I've got some work experience uh, in February uh, with the Chambers which I'm looking forward to, or I might go back to my original goal of um, being a teacher or advocating for care-experienced people. Well, you're so talented, you could do all of them, but you don't (laughs) have enough time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And you're also a talented writer, which you're being very modest about. You've got a beautiful blog, and it's called My Name is Too Long. Is that right? Yes. Um, And the two is the number two. The number two, yeah. We'll, We'll link to it on here. What do you post on there? Um, so it's it's a it's a range of things on there. Sort of recently, I've posted my keynote speech on there, so people could read it. Um, I speak about my time in care, or my journey of faith, or just general bits and bobs, mental health. So whatever I'm passionate about for that six months, it becomes about that. I've had a read, and it is really beautiful, Louise. You write so well, and. It's really fascinating, your insight. You, you write with, with such insight about yourself. So anyone listening, I would really recommend uh, checking out My Name Is Too Long. And are you on Instagram or Twitter? I am on both. I'm a social media nerd. Brilliant. So let's have your details and we'll, uh, we'll so spread the bo- word. So they're both the same. They're my name is underscore number too long. Okay. My name is underscore too long. Yeah. But the number is the two. Yeah. Um, great. Um, on our... On our website, we will we will link to that as well, so people cool. can can find find you there as well. Louise, it has been a real pleasure to meet you, you and to get to know you. I've been so inspired by our chat. You're an amazing person. You've achieved so much, and uh, we just cannot wait to see all your future successes <laughs> as we go on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more stories, experiences and advice from others in care, visit imohub.org.uk. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at imo underscore latest. <laughs>